Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. If you're in tax trouble, you likely need professional help. But let's be honest, tax attorneys like me, enrolled agents, and CPAs are not always affordable options for everyone. I don't say that lightly because it's something that I've certainly struggled with. I really did become a tax attorney to help taxpayers, and it's why I volunteer my time as a VEDA volunteer, uh, doing volunteer tax returns at our local senior sitter, and why I'm a pro bono attorney for organizations like North Carolina Legal Aid. But you can only help so many folks on a case-by-case basis, and all taxpayers deserve quality representation. That's why I'm glad that we have low-income taxpayer clinics, or LITCs. LITCs assist low-income individuals who have a tax dispute with the IRS and provide education and outreach to individuals who speak English as a second language. Although LITCs receive some funding from the IRS, LOTCs, their employees, and their volunteers are completely independent of the IRS. Currently, there are 131 low-income taxpayer clinics located in 46 states and the District of Columbia. They represent taxpayers who need help addressing federal tax disputes and may be unable to afford to hire representatives to advocate on their behalf. Last year, 1,887 volunteers represented nearly 20,000 taxpayers to achieve better outcomes in cases, access benefits administered through the tax code, and resolve tax debts, levies, and liens. To qualify for assistance, generally a taxpayer's income must be below a certain threshold, and the amount in dispute with the IRS is generally less than $50,000. This program certainly deserves more attention. So to talk about it today, I've asked Bill Schmidt on the program. Bill is Clinic Director for the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic at Kansas Legal Services. He completed his JD from Washburn University School of Law in 2009 and his LLM in tax from the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Law in 2010. He co-authored a chapter for the American Bar Association publication, Effectively Representing Your Client Before the IRS. He writes monthly blog posts for procedurally taxing about U.S. tax court designated orders and produces his own tax podcast called Tax Justice Warriors. I'll have links to all of those in the show notes for you. In 2018, he took part in planning and speaking for panels for the American Bar Association's Section of Taxation's Collection Due Process Summit Initiative in San Francisco and D.C. And in 2020, he taught his first law school course, Tax Procedure, for Washburn University School of Law as an adjunct professor. Bill, thanks so much for being here. Oh, certainly. Thank you for having me, Kelly. And you'll have to excuse my, uh, my hoarse voice right now. I've been on the phone this morning with IRS. So, uh, so as we, we um, gear up to talk about this, I'm, I'm certainly ready to talk about tax disputes. To kind of get us started, how did you find your way to LITCs? It was kind of a, a long and windy road. Yeah, I, I actually was going for a paralegal certificate at one point. And as I was taking business law courses, the law firm I was working at, they were, they were paying for the courses because they were, they were connected to the job I was doing. And so I, I got quite a bit of background in business law. And 
eventually I decided to to go to law school and and work toward being an attorney. So I was all intent on doing business law, but the more business courses I took, I kept hearing, well, you need to learn about tax to, mm-hmm. to understand the background of business law. And so I started taking tax courses and I did a had an, an interview at interview session. Um, there, there were several people and one person had recommended that I look into an, an LLM in tax as well. And so eventually I just decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to go down the, the tax route, get some tax courses. And eventually at, at UMKC Law School, I decided to take the tax clinic. And, and I had been doing different tax or different legal clinics at both Washburn and, and UMKC. I did four total in pursuing my my JD and my my LLM, my my different law degrees. And I did the, the low income taxpayer clinic at, at UMKC. And I really enjoyed just in general doing legal clinic work because it's it's getting experience for law students, but it's also helping people out who really need the legal work that, that it's right. all free to them. So that's what, what got me started with, with the LITC field. And, and that was in actually 2010 that I did that. Mm-hmm. And in, in the intervening years, I was kind of back and forth in, in private practice and doing different tax work. But eventually I did some volunteer work for, for Kansas Legal Services with their tax clinic. And then when there was an opening, I applied for that and, and I've worked myself up to being the clinic director. I think what some of our listeners might not know is that the LITCs, a lot of them are actually affiliated with law schools because as you mentioned, it's a really good way for legal students, for law students to get practical experience at the same time while benefiting people who need representation. So a lot of the LITCs are actually tied to law schools. For sure. There's, there's really kind of three types of low-income taxpayer clinics I've, I've learned. That there, there is the law school model where you are teaching students and they work cases during the semesters. There is the, the legal aid model, which I am at, where they're providing free or, or low-cost services to, to people in need and yeah, different legal aid organizations. So it's like an organization where I'm at, they are able to refer cases. So if we have a, a family law case where, where there's a divorce that, that also has a tax issue, that may be referred to me. And then there, there are also standalone nonprofits that, that they may be tax preparation or financial services or or maybe just focused on tax assistance, but but they're kind of a, a standalone organization that, that they aren't in the, the law school or, or legal aid model. And I don't think a lot of people know that legal aid in particular, at least in areas where I have worked, they actually aren't prepared to handle a lot of tax cases. So that's why it's important to have these basically specialized LITCs where they can take on those cases because a lot of times folks who end up um, seeking me out or uh, cases that I might get referred through the bar, they don't really have 
a lot of mechanisms for rooting those taxpayers through the the process because I think that when a lot of legal aid is is kind of geared towards immediate what well, what's considered immediate issues. So, like you mentioned, family law, but so there are like cases at least on the um, East Coast. There are a lot of legal aids that are family law specific. They are housing and tenant eviction type specific. But if you call a legal aid, just a, a general legal aid center, sometimes there might not be someone there that can help with the tax matter. Right. It, it definitely depends on, on the legal aid organization. I mean, in, in mine, I am pretty much the tax specialist for, for statewide for our organization. But it, it definitely depends on what legal aid, what kind of services they provide, that, that we provide family law domestic violence in particular, focusing on those kind of cases, social security, appeals cases, bankruptcy, landlord-tenant. Those are a lot of the cases that that we do at Kansas Legal Services. I know in my um, area of the world, there's a lot of emphasis right now on real estate tax assessments, which is unusual I think for LITCs to to focus on, but I know that that's actually hit a lot of folks really um, in the pocketbook, especially in areas of the country where the population is growing really quickly. So, for example, in my area um, in southeastern Pennsylvania, the corridor along one of our highways is actually considered one of the fastest growing in the state, and as a result, property values have gone up. And that has adversely impacted folks on on fixed incomes, especially we have, and I don't know if this is something you might be familiar with as well, but we have an issue with um, mobile homes because mobile homes are treated like homes for purposes of appreciation, even though they really depreciate like a vehicle. And so what happens is that the um, assessment, it actually can be unaffordable for a lot of taxpayers. And the reason that I even bring this up is that the bar association, the local bar association, which typically does not farm out a lot of legal aid matters related to tax, this is something they've actually been asking people to take on. And again, I think it just kind of goes to the point that, you know, tax is a really, it's a niche. And I don't know that people always understand, you know, sometimes you just call a lawyer, right? Like that's the thing they say to call a lawyer if you have a problem with your real estate or whatever. But you really do have to have a certain level of experience or knowledge in the tax world to handle some of these things. And going beyond that, there's a difference between even federal and state and local. So how does the clinic balance like the kind of cases that they're prepared to do? Because you certainly can't say we'll do all tax matters, right? Because not everybody can do a real estate appraisal at the same level that they could a, you know, a tax court uh, matter. So, so do you have lines that you draw and you say, this is what we're willing to do? Or does it kind of depend on which students you have available or, or how does that work? I don't necessarily have students. Sometimes I have interns um, that like they're this summer, I, I had a student intern who was, who was doing an, an externship for credit, but, but generally it's, it's quite a bit of me that's doing the work, receive our fund. We, let, let me take a step back. We, we receive half our funding from the IRS Okay. for all of the low-income taxpayer clinics. So we have to have matching funds from another source. So legal aids, we receive quite a bit of funding from 
from LSC corporation law schools. They they may often get their funding from the university or you know and so on. But but we have to find ways of getting matching funds. So that that may be donations that can be volunteers that we can count billable hours at at certain rates. So students, enrolled agents, attorneys, we find a billable rate for them and that that helps us meet our match. Okay. But the funding from the IRS is specifically for federal cases. Okay. And if there is a state case that's in conjunction with that federal case, then that's fine. But if they're coming to me and um, like one example is this person, I, I don't remember if they had an offer in compromise or just paid in full what they owed, but they had already dealt with their federal tax issue. So then they're coming to me with just a state tax issue. Mm-hmm. So then I need to look at my other funding and qualify them that way if they have a state tax issue. So for the general guidelines for a loan taxpayer clinic, it is 250% of the poverty level and below that will qualify. Okay. And um, I think as a rule of thumb, it is uh, roughly $30,000 for one family member and then $10,000 for each additional family member. That's, that's not exact, but it's just something that, that people can keep in their heads to Sure. Because does it vary from state to state? I think Alaska and Hawaii are are a little different, but generally the the contiguous 48 states are the same level for the the 250% of the poverty line. Okay. But yeah, with, um, for example, then my my LSC funding, I think it's generally 125% of the, the federal poverty level. So it's roughly half the the income that would qualify if they just have a state um, level problem, and yeah, generally the the same if it's if it's a local tax issue as well. So I'm I'm often doing state tax cases, but then when it comes to like local real estate taxes or something like that, then that's that's kind of straying even further afield of of what I normally do. So a little bit, I've been able to work with, with the local county and, and give some people some advice if, if there was a foreclosure for tax issues or, or something. But mostly we, we kind of stay in the lane of the, the federal tax cases. Right. So it's kind of a, a clinic by clinic, what they will do if, if it comes to state taxes or, or whichever. And I, I'm going to be honest, I had no idea that the formulas for the funding and then the kind of taxpayers that you serve would be so complicated. I would think that that would take up a lot of your time on the administration side. Well, it, it helps that, that my organization, we have a central intake and they, they check the funding and, and see what, what percentage they are in comparison to the poverty line. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, certainly if, if there is a clinic that, that they don't have the support staff for, for intakes, sometimes the, the clinic employees, they have to do the math themselves and, and figure out what, they're, what they are in, in comparison to the poverty line. You know, it, it's on them to, to do that math. Right. 
So how many uh, taxpayers would a clinic like yours help per year if on like, let's say a federal level? I mean, because I know, I mean, tax matters are not something that you call up and you have resolved in a week. I mean, they tend to be ongoing, right? So I, I imagine that to keep caseloads somewhat manageable, you have to have have some guidelines. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm generally about 100 cases a year that, that I'm working, but I, I think I'm on the, the low end when it comes to cases. Okay. Our clinic has been around five years or so, and, and I think we're, we're still even trying to get the word out within Kansas that, that the clinic even exists. You do outreach to the communities to try to get folks to know that you're there? I mean, how does that work? Obviously, advertising and outreach also costs money. So how, how do you let people know that you exist? Some of the goals within the LITC organization is for clinics to do education and outreach. So we are trying to help educate the public on compliance issues, learning what credits they may qualify for, and, and trying to reach English as a second language communities. Mm-hmm. But also within that, I, I do try and do a good amount of outreach. I had been trying to do outreach at public libraries during the tax season, but frankly, I was, I was getting low turnout. If I got a couple people that, that showed up to, to my presentation, I was, I was ecstatic. Really? And, and so that's why I started the podcast, because even though I don't have huge numbers, because it is a tax podcast, very, very <laughs> niche. Sure. But I'm meeting better numbers on a consistent basis than, than a couple people showing up there. Right. Do, why do you think people don't show up? Do you think it's like embarrassment? Is it lack of education about what you're going to be talking about? Maybe they don't understand. Why do you think the numbers are low? I really don't know. It, it was, it was definitely a head scratcher. I mean, I, you know, I, I assume either people are busy or, or not interested in taxes or something, but I was surprised that I was thinking during tax season, a, a free presentation about being compliant with taxes. I would, I would think that would interest people because sure. I, I see the issues where people get in trouble with the IRS and, and how they need help getting things untangled. I thought there would be more people that would come out, but mm-hmm. you know, not, not so much. I wonder if it is like an embarrassment factor, because one of the great things about a podcast is you can talk about things that people need to know and they can listen to it in their car and nobody has to know that maybe they are facing a lien or worried about a levy or have a refund problem. Yeah, exactly. That. I mean, I, I think YouTube and, and podcasts are, are great ways to educate people that, you know, you can do this at, at your schedule and you, you can pick whatever topic you want to learn something about. It's, it's an enormous help to people. That's why I've been, been doing my podcast, the, the Tax Justice Warriors, to shine more of a light on the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic organization. Mm-hmm. But, but also just doing tax news or, or interviews to educate people. I mean, I, I think of myself as an intermediate tax expert. And so I'm, I'm trying to help the, the newbies, the, the new people to, to learning about tax that, 
this is a way to to learn about a particular topic. But yeah, too, in doing my outreach, what I learned is I'm going to find someone who already has something organized. And so it it may be a a conference, it may be just in general outreach to the public. And I often do things that are um, I've found different education to tax preparers, the the accountants, the enrolled agents, and I do a quick pitch to them because I figure they're on the front lines that they can refer those clients to me who who truly need the help. Right. I think that's been some of the most successful outreaches that I've done to where I'm I'm actually reaching large groups of of people who are interested in tax that way. And one of the things you mentioned earlier about trying to, you know, I think you said you were an intermediate uh, expert. (laughs) I think one of the things that is really important is one of the things that I struggle with all the time is when I started my blog um, years ago, one of the things that drove me nuts is that at the time, and and I will, I, I should caveat this with, you know, times are changing, but at the time, there were not a lot of, especially free resources that were easy to understand, but didn't talk down to people. Like a lot of what you could find on the internet um, was either highly technical. So, you know, white papers, that sort of thing that your average taxpayer maybe doesn't have the time or the uh, background to dive into. Or it was written for, like you mentioned, it may be written for CPAs, EAs, uh, tax attorneys. But for taxpayers who just want to know, you know, how do I change my address? Or (laughs) what is the process for filing a small case in tax court? There used to not be a lot of those resources available. I I think we've made a lot of strides um, over the past few years. And I think actually the IRS has done such a much better job on their own website of making resources available. But I do think that there's still a hole for taxpayers who can't afford to hire um, a professional to help them out, but still need understanding of not only getting themselves out of a jam, but as you mentioned, compliance matters. Like folks, in my experience, folks want to be compliant. They don't like the idea that they don't know what to do. Um, you know, they want to move into compliance and, and there should be more resources to help them do that. Oh, I, I definitely agree. A couple responses there. One is that when I see some of the experts, some of that is there are people who they work decades for the IRS, they retire, and then they do their second job as a low-income taxpayer clinic director. Mm-hmm. Then, then they're putting in like another decade there. So those are people that, that they have 30, 40 years working with tax and, and certainly different accountants out, out in the field and, and so on that those are people that, that I kind of look at as, as experts that, that they can dig into some, some obscure topic and really give some, some nuggets about that, that tax issue. Mm-hmm. I turn to them as, as definitely experts, but I've been doing this for over 10 years at this point. So I feel a little bit more advanced than, than someone new to the field. But I, I definitely agree that understandable topics, whether it's podcasts or, or writing or, or whatever materials, that they need to be understandable for the public. Right. 
last week I was working with, or, or maybe two weeks ago, working with the IRS on virtual settlement days. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's in conjunction with a tax court upcoming calendar date for for trials. But most of these ones, they, they weren't specifically set for trial, but they were ones that IRS attorneys had designated. These are likely good settlements. Well, as we went through the cases, these were items that, that the these people had, they might have self-prepared their taxes or they filed the wrong form or or did some kind of what I think is a, a simple mistake, mm-hmm. but they had just gone through the system with the IRS that it kind of was to where the, the buck stops with the IRS attorneys with tax court and they're saying, okay, let's resolve this matter. And I I give kudos to to the Kansas City Council for the IRS that that they are very reasonable, very easy to work with. They're they're understanding, they they listen to the taxpayers, and we we talk through the issues and we were able to resolve most of the cases that I sat in on. There were six different taxpayers who had contacted me and four of them we got resolved within that week or the next. That's awesome. And yeah. I think those virtual settlement days, I know they've uh, indicated that that's something that they're going to be trying to continue after the pandemic. I think that's an amazing development because I think that especially folks who might not be able to take off a day and travel to where they need to be, it's, it's, I think it's, it's going to be a great uh, service for especially low-income tax payers who might have issues that need a resolution, but you know, maybe they can't be there in person. So that's encouraging if they are going to continue that, which I understand they may. My understanding, I, I'd spoken with an, an IRS individual at one of the American Bar Association conferences, and he was saying, like, I asked about the taxpayer response is not always high. It, it might be about 10% that actually respond to, to the letters to do a settlement day. Mm-hmm. But the IRS view is this is closing cases and it is often a win-win for everyone involved. Right. So they are going to keep doing it, whatever the circumstance. And so now it just happens with the pandemic that, that these are often virtual settlements that that we're doing essentially a conference call with video yes to to where we're everyone can can take part the the taxpayer doesn't always want to be on video but it it helps us to to gather and discuss the case maybe we can resolve all that maybe maybe we can push it forward in some way but it's it, it is very useful because it like you were saying it the taxpayer doesn't have to drive to whatever location they don't they can work around their work schedule and um, when when we did these settlement days sometimes it would be on a Saturday morning just to to try and be convenient to as many taxpayers as we could mm-hmm. and so now we were able to do it Wednesday through Friday and I would do one in the morning one in the afternoon generally and and just trying to work through those cases that way that's awesome 
I do, and again, I think that that's one of the, the things that especially um, low-income taxpayers need access to folks who can walk them through tax court cases because the statistics show that taxpayers who are represented in matters do better before the IRS and before tax court. So I think that representation is really important. But as we discussed earlier, you know, not everybody has access to those folks. And so that's what the LITCs are there for. It's to provide you with the representation that helps you get, you know, hopefully a good outcome on your case. Oh, definitely. I mean, these are these are off the top of my head. I don't know if it's 95% or, but it, it is some huge number that they are self-represented taxpayers who, who file petitions with the tax court. And I mean, some of it, it is a low filing fee, $60, just to file a petition with the tax court. Mm -hmm. But because there is such an influx of self-represented taxpayers with the tax court, the judges have to learn, they've had to be able to accommodate the self-represented taxpayers to try and make everything understandable for the taxpayers. And I, I think part of it is I've learned that not only are we trying to, to communicate with them about what's going on legally in, in the court process, mm -hmm. but we also have to translate to them, this is what is the tax process and this is the IRS procedure that is going on with your case. Right. So when, when I sit down with a client about tax court, I'm, I'm having to explain to them, this is the, the process now with tax court. This is the schedule that you are on in, in kind of what to expect in dealing with appeals and dealing with counsel in, in potentially settling your case in, in possibly going to trial. This is, this is what to expect. Right. And then even in trial, sometimes in tax court, this is the first time that taxpayers have ever been inside a courtroom. I know that I represented a taxpayer once um, who had never been in court before. And uh, she kept wanting to object because, you know, she had seen it on TV. <laughs> and I had to keep, uh, keep whispering to her. She was explaining to me that, that uh, the, um, actually it was her ex-husband, was lying. And I had to keep saying, uh, you know, I appreciate that, but we can't. We can't just stand up like you see on TV and yell, I object. Um, so yeah, there is a lot of education about the process because a lot of times this is the, again, the first uh, interaction they've had with the courtroom. Yeah. And it's, it's funny how kind of relaxed and, and comfortable a tax court trial can be. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Because the, the judges, they're, they're just basically, they want to hear everyone's side and then they will make their decision that. I like I like working with tax court because you're you're not so focused on whether it's discovery or then later on in the trial, like you're saying, dealing with objections or or any of that. No, it's it's just a matter of let's let's get the the truth out. Let's get get everything before the judge. I completely agree. Absolutely. In terms of other kinds of cases that you work, so obviously tax court is one of them. Do you guys do a lot of offers or what other kinds of work do you do that you would say takes up most of your time? 
We do grant reports on at least two a year in, in reviewing the cases. And the latest time, I think I it really hit me. It's about three quarters of our cases are dealing with collections mm-hmm. that it's it's trying to get clients into currently not collectible status and right. then doing offers that, that that's the majority of the cases help, helping them deal with you know, sometimes it is that that they have some kind of garnishment or, or losing money from their bank account but but in in general it's I am unable to pay what I owe to the IRS can can you help me get this resolved in in some way or and and the state as well. And what what can be tricky is that different states have have different ways of of dealing with it. Sometimes it reflects the IRS. Sometimes it doesn't. So it's it's kind of a, a state by state basis. But then then that last twenty five percent, I think those are the more the unique cases that that get interesting. That they are the tax court cases, innocent spouse, and I don't know, identity theft, maybe some some other unique ones, but really, really the bulk of what we're seeing are those those collection alternative cases that we're trying to work with the IRS on on how much they owe. Right. I think that's pretty, pretty consistent nationwide. Did you guys uh, work a lot of stimulus check matters this year? Oh, for sure. The the EIP cases that, yeah, we... I've heard you say on on the podcast getting contacted by by people not getting their their stimulus checks, and that's definitely us. Um, I know another clinic they posted something and then it went viral, and so they were getting contacted nationwide by by different people needing assistance. So yeah, that is that is definitely something that is is on our minds. We. We have a listserv that that we stay in contact and say like these are issues we're seeing. What what kind of assistance do you think we can get, or what what options are there with the IRS? That kind of thing. But there are also tax clinics, and it's it's more the, the law school tax clinics that some of them have done litigation that they have called a class action, perhaps on behalf of people who, who were left out from statutorily from the groups that would receive an economic impact payment. Yes. And so they've, they've filed. Yeah, there's one that they're working on for um, incarcerated persons. I know that there's one in the Northeast that it is, it is coming out of a low-income tax clinic associated with a university. Right. Yeah. And, and some of this has was a little bit forced, this in conjunction with some, some congressional pushes, that, that that is a little bit forced the hand of the IRS to, to open up more people who, who were um, able to get stimulus payments from the IRS. So, yeah, it, it is definitely something that has been on the mind of, of different tax clinics, that, that there are people who who were included in the statute that should have received their payments and didn't. People right. who were later told in IRS FAQs, like the, the prisoners you mentioned, and mm-hmm. um, people who, um, the decedents who 
the payments were were mailed out to their address and that that they were told um, listed in IRS FAQs that they were not allowed to receive the payment and were encouraged to to send it back to the IRS. I mean, I, I find this frustrating because they, they were not explicitly mentioned within the statute, so they should not be required to send it back. Yeah, you don't want to get me started on that. <laughs> that'd be another that'd be another episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, they this is definitely on the mind of, of tax clinics that, that we try and do what we can for our clients, but but unfortunately there isn't a lot that we can do with with the IRS on it. Right. So kind of my 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 fun wrap-up question. If somebody was to give you a huge check tomorrow, what would be the thing that you would want to do with it for the clinic? Like would you hire more people? Would you expand your services? Would you do more outreach? Like if you had more funding tomorrow, what would be the one thing that's been kind of in the back of your mind that you would love to do that you haven't been able to do because of money? There would be so so much that it would be great to do. I, I think probably the, the first thing would, would be hiring more people to to reach more clients, re- do more outreach for sure. But yeah, there there's there's a lot of ways that that money could be used. I I don't know. I, I think too with reading lately the national taxpayer advocate blogs about about the IRS needing funding to update their their computer systems. That mm-hmm. that's what kind of came first to mind for me is I, I think on both sides it, it would benefit things if if the IRS could could run things well with their computer systems. So yes. that's that's what I was <laughs> thinking when it came to money that I would all you know I would almost spend it on them to to get things fixed. But but yeah, I, I could definitely find ways to to spend money when it came to tax clinics. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about the LITCs and the work that you do. I think it's important work and I don't think it gets enough attention. So I appreciate your taking the time to talk to our listeners about what it does. If our folks wanted to find you on either the web or social media, where would you send them? Taxjusticewarriors.com the, for the, the podcast. I, I'm not the best at having a social media presence. I need to to update myself on Twitter or, or something like that. But yeah, that's that's the best place to to find me. You you can find me on LinkedIn and message me that way. That that would be a great and easy way to find me as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Kelly. Uh, thank you for having me. Thanks. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.